Welcome back to Elder Side, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are covering the short story called The Thing Invisible, written by William Hope Hodgson and published in 1912. This is a Karnacki occult detective story. It's the uh, second story in our ongoing series about occult detectives. It's also the second Karnacki story that we have ever covered. I'm pretty excited about this one. I'm really excited about talking about this story too. But before we get into it, I want to encourage you to uh, check out the voting polls that we've sent out so that you can vote to determine what series we'll do next year. You know, this year we're doing occult detective stories and as a concept and looking at a lot of those stories. And then also as an author, we're looking at uh, Borges next year. That's up in the air and it's up to you. So hopefully you can pause the show right now. Uh, go vote if you haven't reviewed us on uh, iTunes or whatever. We hope you'll do that too. Uh, but really the idea is vote so that we can figure out what we're going to do next year. Right. And of course, you gain access to those votes, to those polls by joining us on Patreon at the Archon tier or higher. So if you are interested in deciding you know, what we cover on the show, uh, please check us out there. Well, let's turn our attention back to the story at hand, Brandon. This occult detective story, you know, it is the second in this series that we're doing. So it's, you know, early days of uh, this theme here this year. But this occult detective story, I think, is in some ways the polar opposite of the giant silence story that we read last time, uh, A Victim of Higher Space, where that really was more like a, a therapy session, I think, is what we had settled on there. <laughs> the Thing Invisible actually has a lot of physicality to it and, and a lot of investigation to it. Um, some of the physicality, though, in this story is like pratfall comedy type of physicality, as we'll see. Yeah. So I'm interested in talking about how, how that all worked for you. So uh, let me get out of the way here and let you start taking us through it. Well, the thing invisible begins much in the way that the Haunted Jar V did. That's the last Karnacki story we covered, though in terms of a series, I think uh, this is a later Karnacki story, the thing invisible is. But anyway, this story begins much in the same way that the Haunted Jar V did with our trusty narrator introducing a frame to the tale. Karnacki has sent postcards out to his close circle of friends and has invited them to dinner. Uh, and also at dinner, he'll tell them the tale of his latest investigation. Our narrator is the first to arrive at Karnacki's place and Karnacki, without saying anything, just points to a chair and basically indicates to the narrator that the narrator needs to remain quiet until Karnacki has finished working and dinner is ready. Maybe a kind of chilly reception here. But eventually the rest of Karnacki's friends, the rest of the crew shows up. Dinner is served. Everyone has a really pleasant time during the meal. Afterwards, the group makes themselves nice and cozy and overstuffed chairs and couches and waits for Karnacki to begin the telling of his story. You know, I, I find this intro really fantastic because it feels to me as a reader that we're being invited into some kind of exclusive club. And it also makes Karnacki out to be a kind of eccentric who'd give you a sense of being one of the elect if he let you into his circle. Yeah, I think fantastic is the the right word for this introduction 
here. Yeah, Karnacki has this real uh, you know, sense of, of exclusivity here. Like he, the fact that he invites you over to his house as a kind of summons, like an urgent summons that comes via, you know, postcard that presumably is, you know, hand delivered by uh, some kind of, you know, I don't know, messenger service that you can get in, uh, in London circa 1910. <laughs> and so, yeah, I imagine that you feel important getting a summons like this, though. I'll, I'll be honest, Brandon, if you ever summon me like this, I'm probably not going to come because I need more, I need more notice than that. So, but, uh, but yeah, I love the feeling of this. I love this sort of framing device. We don't, you know, get this sort of thing very often anymore in stories, but I think it serves to you know, enhance the familiarity that we're really looking for from these type of serialized characters, these types of serialized stories. I think Hodgson does an awesome job of making this feel instantly familiar and inviting. Um, also, Brandon, I like that uh, you said something like, you know, the group you know, makes themselves cozy or something like that. But I actually want to read how Hodgson writes this, like specifically what Hodgson says. And so here it is. After a thoroughly sensible little dinner, Karnacki would snuggle down into his big armchair, light his pipe, and wait whilst we arranged ourselves comfortably in our accustomed seats and nooks. And, uh... Yeah, listener, you heard that correctly. Snuggle <laughs> is the word here. I I just love it. This uh, cult detective story, you know, like early on, page one has the occult detective snuggling. It's perfect. I love it. It's so great. I love, I just love how cozy it is and how, you know, we're getting this tale. I guess it's this kind of trope of the Edwardian ghost story, right? Where you go to the drawing room and somebody's got a story to tell and they're these, you know, storytelling clubs. Uh, I wish that still existed as a trope in fiction. I wish it existed maybe even in out in the community in the real world too. Uh, but there is just something really inviting about this opening to the story. But we're going to move past that here. And uh, now we've got everyone cozied up in fluffy chairs with pipes lit, a glass of milk with a cookie in hand, and they're all ready to hear Karnacki's spooky story. Karnacki, you see, has just returned from Sir Alfred Jarnock's place at Burton Tree in South Kent. There's been some strange and extraordinary goings on there, and Karnacki had been invited by Alfred's son, George, to, quote, clear up matters for the family. Karnacki arrived at the estate, and he discovered that the family has an old chapel attached to the castle that the family occupies. The chapel has a reputation for being haunted, and while Karnacki does have a reputation, I guess, as like a, a ghost finder, he tells us that ultimately he's pretty skeptical about hauntings. 99 out of 100 of them are fake, but there is the odd case that requires some kind of intervention. This case in the chapel could certainly use looking at by an expert of Karnacki's ilk because things have recently gotten dangerous. There's a dagger in the chapel. That's the haunted thing, so to speak, as the dagger has been reputed to attack any enemy of the family should that enemy be in the chapel after nightfall. The situation that Karnacki must then investigate is this. The dagger, purportedly, on its own accord, attacked by stabbing the family butler just above the heart. This event, this uh, attack from the dagger on the family butler, took place in the full view of the Jarnock family as they wrapped up their family service on Sunday. 
Uh, and in charge of that service was the rector of the local village parish who also administers the family services. So he was present then uh, for the dagger's attack on Butler and was a witness to the whole thing, a reputable witness. The dagger, I should mention here, hangs over the altar in the chapel uh, in its sheath. But in any event, at this point in the story, we now understand why Karnacki, a skeptical believer in ghosts and hauntings, was brought in to investigate the case. So Karnacki takes some time to collect the facts of the case, to interview all the witnesses and so forth. And he has determined that every witness is reputable enough to be taken at their word. The butler really was attacked by a flying dagger by heretofore unexplainable means other than resorting to an explanation by a ghost. So Karnacki has some work to do. First, he examines the sheath of the dagger, which is inscribed with the following inscriptions. On one side, the inscription, translated from Latin, reads, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. On the other side, the inscription reads, I watch, I strike. So this is all pretty ominous stuff here. <laughs> uh, the next thing Karnacki does is try to figure out a way that someone could have broken into the chapel uh, in order to maybe set a trap or something like that, but that's also impossible. The only way into the chapel is through the chapel door, which is kept locked by Alfred Jarnack himself, who has the only key, and he keeps the key with him at all times, uh, except when he opens the door for the services or goes into the chapel, I suppose, of his own accord. In any event, the door is always locked. Karnacki then uh, photographs the chancel because he wants to compare a photo of the chancel taken in the day with a photo of the chancel taken at night. But there's a wrinkle in this plan because Alfred Jarnock won't let Karnacki into the chapel at night because Jarnock, rightly, doesn't want to deal with anything bad happening to Karnacki. Is this a dagger which I see before me? (laughs) The handle toward my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not, fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation, proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? Uh, There's no way I couldn't be thinking about Macbeth. Like, this whole setup just gives serious Macbeth vibes, which I I love. But, you know, there's a floating dagger, and, like, maybe it's not real. Uh, It's got sinister messages on it. It's fantastic. Uh, Also, just, you know, I mean, the dagger literally explains what is probably going on here, like right on it, right? It's vengeance from beyond the grave, uh, that this family is haunted because of some previous transgression. And with this whole photography business, I mean, I assume that what's going to happen here is that we're going to end up getting a gruesome glimpse of whoever, you know, is going to turn out to be like the Banquo in this story. At least that's how I'm feeling you know, on my first read of this at this point, that's all going to, you know, Hutchin is actually going to pull that rug out from under us here because, right, Karnacki is skeptical of supernatural phenomenon. And really, this setup, of course, could just as easily be read as a special Halloween episode of Murder, She Wrote. And uh, we will have to see which way the story goes here. But I just love it. I love it too. It really has this—I uh, don't know—Scooby Doo type of feel to it, right? And, and <laughs> I, you know, I was—I've been I, I, up till this point. I'm waiting for some of 
Karnacki's investigations to reveal uh, to what degree the butler is a scoundrel or a rascal or something like that. But no, uh, butler's off stage for the rest of the story, recovering from his wound. And, and by all accounts, he's a pretty good guy. So there's a lot of questions, I think, that uh, are left in my mind as a reader at this point in the story, as Hodgson is kind of busy subverting expectations. One of the expectations being the butler did it, right? Classic classic phrase. Right. And Carnegie plays with that here just by immediately making the butler actually the victim here, which I think is is fun as well. I mean, I think there's a lot of humor in this story as well. We'll see as we go. And that's something we can talk about in the discussion as well. But I think that this is meant to be a, a fun and also funny story. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, all right. Well, let's return to this business with the key that Karnacki can't get access to because Jarnock is carrying it with him at all times. So Karnacki really does want to do this photo comparison, you know, of the daytime photo and the nighttime photo of the chancel just to see, I guess, if anything can be gleaned from that sort of information. And he just simply won't be dissuaded from visiting the chapel at night. If he can't get Jarnock's permission, he'll have to get into the chapel with his own creativity, I suppose. He'll have to find his own way in. But of course, we've already learned that there's no other way in besides with Jarnock's key. So Karnacki asks Jarnock for the key so that he can get inside the chapel during the day to take the photo. While Karnacki has the key, though, he makes an impression of the key in a cake of soap, and then he takes the photos that he's taken of the chancel and the soap with the impression in it uh, down into Burton Tree, which has a CVS and a Home Depot so that (laughs) Karnacki can get his photos developed and have his key made. Yeah, this story, right? Part of the premise of this story is that Karnacki is a person who is skeptical. He doesn't think that there are ghosts or that there are hauntings, right? That needs to be proved. His default setting is, you know, just one of skepticism. But I have to say that uh, uh, I think maybe like you, Brandon, the detail I was most skeptical of in the story is the idea that he can get a key made and get pictures developed in this tiny little village here in (laughs) South Kent. The key being made, you know, perhaps less skeptical of, but I have a hard time envisioning this village possessing a place to develop photographs. On the other hand, I also know almost nothing about early photography. So maybe by 1910 or so, there was actually enough demand to to warrant this. But nonetheless, I was skeptical. Yeah, it's it's a hilarious little bit of information here where he's just like, I'm just going to go into town and like, that's, I don't know, you can do that on a Saturday now. But, you know, getting the photos developed is going to take some days, it seems like. And there's just a lot of detail here in this story about early photography and how it works. We're going to get more of this uh, a little bit later on. Well, Karnacki bums around the town for a little bit, waiting for the ironmonger to finish the key. It's not really a Home Depot. And eventually, he does get a copy of the key, and he heads back up to the castle, where he passes the time playing billiards and eating dinner. And then he drinks a coffee, and then he pretends to be tired so that everyone can go to bed, and he can sneak into the chapel. I mean, even, I think, up until uh, and through Murder, She Wrote, it was the norm to drink coffee right up until bedtime. That's just always something that culturally is really interesting to me in, in, a, lot of, in a lot of detective stories. Uh, anyway, 
Yeah, I don't know how people do that. I mean, if I have caffeine any later than about 9 a.m., I will be I will be up all night. So for me, <laughs> like this should be the clue, right? If this were a murder she wrote episode and uh, you know, I don't know. I was I was in this party or something like that. I would immediately be skeptical of the person who just chugged a cup of coffee saying, "I'm tired and now I need to go to bed." Well, now I'm going to stay up all night and, and and follow you around as you sneak around this castle and try to break into the chapel. Yeah, it's hilarious. I mean, even in those episodes of Murder, She Wrote, when like somebody knocks on her door at 10 p.m., she's like, let me put the coffee on. Uh, That's my Angela Lansbury uh, impersonation for the record. And, you know, it's always like, oh, coffee. Why not like a nice chamomile tea? It's just really, really funny to me how the culture around caffeine has really changed in the past 30 years or so. All right, well, let's return to our story here. (laughs) After everybody goes to sleep, uh, Karnacki puts on some mix and match, some mix and match pieces of some suits of armor he's found around the castle. Uh, this is to protect his chest and, and arms and torso from a potential dagger blow that he could get if he is deemed to be an enemy in the chapel. So he sneaks out of his room and then the next 20 pages of the story are actually just Karnacki's description of how scary it is to be alone in a dark haunted chapel at night by yourself. Um, I'll save you the trouble of reading this, though I do recommend reading this story. It can get pretty spooky and you might feel occasionally oppressed by ghostly forces from out of the void. Uh, But Karnacki tells his audience that he is no coward and he knows that he's got a job to do. Yeah, I think you're right here, Brandon, to point out that this is about 20 pages of story. I really loved this story. In fact, I, I thought this was an awesome story. But I will say that this is the part that probably needed a firmer editorial hand. It does have a lot of spooky elements, and those elements are really cool. But nonetheless, I think this section could easily have been cut in half and, and would have been stronger for it. Yeah, if if Hodgson had just taken like the two most evocative paragraphs about sitting in the dark, it would, the story would have been, I think, much stronger. But I think we also have been saying that this story has some comedy elements to it. And this sort of sitting in the dark and being afraid and then gathering courage, it, it, it kind of plays into some of the, I don't know, slapsticky elements uh, of this story. But apart from being a story about uh, sitting in the dark by yourself in a chapel overnight, the thing invisible also turns out to be a kind of proto-techno thriller. There's plenty here about how cameras and flashes work, how flashlights work and so forth, you know, how using both a camera flash and a flashlight can help you get the photo you want. Karnacki managed to get some pictures of the dagger and the chancel in the dark by shining his flashlight on the or exposing the... camera plate for a really long time. And Karnacki does also decide to explore the chapel a little bit in the dark. As I said, he keeps the camera lens uncovered so that he can get some overexposed photos with whatever light does find its way onto the camera plate. I guess, I mean, Glenn, I think I know about as much as you do about cameras from 1912, but <laughs> in, any, in any event, uh, as Karnacki has built up the courage to move around a little bit, he does so, and he is very quickly struck <laughs> in the heart by the dagger. Now, the chest piece he's wearing has absorbed most of the blow, but this blade is really long, and it made it through enough of the armor to scratch him pretty bad, um, and plus he has some bruising from the impact. <laughs> 
So at this point, after getting attacked by the blade, Karnacki runs out of the chapel, uh, but he's now in a, in a bit of a, of a tight situation. He needs to check out his injuries and he's also left all of his stuff in the chapel. Um, and he doesn't want Alfred Jarnick knowing that he's broken the trust. So Karnacki basically has to figure out, you know, how to dress his wound, get the armor back in its place and get to the chapel before everybody wakes up. But he he doesn't want to return to the chapel in the dark. So this is where I guess some of the tension of the story comes in. Um so he waits until dawn. He gets back to the chapel. He finds his camera. It's been knocked over. Probably he had knocked it over. Uh, the lens is smashed, but the plate is in really good shape. So he's able to develop the images of the photos he took overnight. Now, for good measure, Karnacki makes his way to the altar to examine the dagger. But he quickly realizes that the dagger is no longer hanging above the altar, but is on the floor where you know, it had bounced off the armor plate where he had been struck. And this really freaks Karnacki out because he has absolutely no explanation yet for what has happened. You know, he he's not an enemy of the family. He's been called in by the family members explicitly to help them. So the whole situation has really become confounding. Karnacki puts the dagger back in its place, you know, again, because he doesn't want to leave any evidence that he's been in the chapel overnight. And then he leaves the chapel behind. As I said, this section really could have used some cutting. And I have to say, Brandon, that I think you've done a really awesome job of summarizing it. But what you have left out is Karnacki stumbling around in the dark while he's wearing a suit of plate mail, <laughs> like he's, you know, Chevy Chase doing a pratfall bit. And I, you know, I don't know if Hodgson meant for this to be goofy or not, but it, it's certainly read as goofy to me. It, I enjoyed it, but I think it might be one of the elements I would actually change about this story. I mean, certainly if I were Karnacki and I were telling this story to the friends I've just summoned over, uh, you know, my close friends who I've just summoned over for this dinner party, I would probably leave out the part where I tripped all over myself and fell to the floor <laughs> with a huge clang. But I did get a kick out of that part. Yeah, he he did, though, leave out the part where he wet himself after getting struck by the <laughs> dagger. So he he was doing some self-editing, but not not enough, not enough self-editing. Right. When you leave this detail in, you have to ask yourself as an audience member, what has actually been omitted here? And I think you have uh, you nailed it. <laughs> well, Karnacki goes back to his room uh, after gathering all his the stuff from the chapel, you know, at dawn or whatever. And he prepares for the day. And once he's freshly shaved, he returns to Burton Tree to find the local photographer because he wants to use the dark room. Uh, Karnacki then develops the photos off of his own plates, and he makes a discovery, which we will soon hear about, uh, a discovery from the long exposure plate or the you know lightless photography plate, as he calls it. And this is where we get some real techno part of the techno thriller uh, plot. Uh, this is all about photography development and styles of shooting and so forth. But the point is that soon Karnacki, by comparing his photos, has the proof he was looking for, the, the lynch piece, the linchpin piece of information that explains this whole affair. And so he rushes back up to the castle to see Sir Alfred and to take Sir Alfred to the chapel in order to show him what's been going on. But 
Sir Alfred isn't feeling too well. He's feeling too unwell to rise. And also, he doesn't want anyone inside the chapel anymore in any event. At least, this is what Alfred's son, George, has communicated to Carnacki. But Carnacki, you know, promptly ignores this concern, and he returns to the chapel using his spare key in order to carry out some experiments to test and ultimately prove his hypothesis. When Carnacki is satisfied that he's proven to himself the truth behind the haunting, he goes to get George Jarnock, and he brings George to the chapel. Now, before they enter the chapel, though, Carnacki suggests that they work together in order to bring one of the dummies wearing a suit of armor down the aisle um, to place it where they need it placed. You know, they want to take the dummy on the down the aisle of the chapel to the gate uh, that that is embedded in the chancel rail. And this is because Carnacki uh, has, you know, found out that there's something going on with this gate. Um, so he and the younger Jarnock stand to the sides of this dummy to ensure that they're out of harm's way. Then Carnacki pushes the dummy so that the dummy's weight opens the chancel gate, the rail, uh, the gate on the chancel rail. And you can guess the next thing that happens. I'm sure the dagger flies out of its sheath and into the breast of the dummy. But how did Carnacki force the ghost, the thing invisible, to act? Well, that's what he'd been working on with his photographs and experiments inside the chapel. It turns out that there's a space in the altar that was once used to store the gold cups and so forth used in the service. You know, things of great value, uh, great material value, maybe I should say. And Sir Alfred had taken over that space to store his wife's jewelry. Now, Sir Alfred is aged and he's a widower and he's not maybe in the strongest state of mind. And it turns out that he'd learned about this dagger being a trap you can set from a manuscript he'd read in the castle. And what Sir Alfred had done was to set the trap regularly late at night, every night after hiding the jewelry. But on the day of the, the fateful service that resulted in the butler's wound, Alfred had set the trap and he'd forgotten to release it. So this is really all just a series of unfortunate events that brought Karnacki to the Jarnocks. Karnacki explains everything and he promises George that, you know, he'll keep his mouth shut about the issue because this was really an honest mistake. Young Jarnock gives Karnacki the dagger as a kind of insurance that no one else will be injured by the elder Jarnock's mistakes with, uh, you know, trap, trap setting in the chapel. Um, and there were never any ghosts to begin with. Uh, after this, you know, this is kind of the end of the tale. Karnacki answers a few of his guests' questions about the case, but then it's bedtime, so he shoes his guests out of the ha out of the door, and that's the end of the story. Yeah, he gets them out fast. Uh, just he's done telling the story, and that is that is it. That is the end of the the night. It's uh, a great party, though. I want to go to more parties like this for sure. <laughs> yeah, it w wasn't a ghost story. Just no no ghost at all. It wasn't Macbeth either. It turns out, but yeah, it's really. Uh, 
Halloween episode of Murder, She Wrote or something like that. <laughs> but I have to say, Hudson got me. I, I so badly wanted there to be something supernatural going on that I, I mean, I just took all of Hodgson's bait, even as he was, I think, pretty plainly telling us up front that the whole thing is really just some kind of, I don't know, sad prequel to Home Alone, I guess, is maybe one way to to pitch this story. <laughs> and this is really where I actually want to start the discussion, picking up from our previous episode on this theme, also our first episode on this theme of occult detectives. One of the questions you asked me last time, Brandon, was more or less, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know whether the Algernon Blackwood, John Silence story, a victim of higher space, really qualifies as an occult detective story. And I think we should ask that question here as well, given that nothing supernatural is really going on. So uh, what do you think? I, I think it's fair to classify this as an occult detective story. I think what Hodgson is doing is pointing out again this sort of um conflict between irration this conflict between like rationality and empirical investigation and uh the potential for the spiritual wor- world to intrude upon our own world uh and play by a different set of rules and so even though this story doesn't have any occult nature to it who else are you going to call to investigate a potentially haunted dagger, whether or not the dagger itself is haunted or a ghost is out there stabbing people in church? Well, I think that on its own is actually a pretty great question. There's no indication here that someone other than Karnacki has been called in, but I have to imagine that this local well, I think these are probably aristocrats, actually, right? Living in this castle with the the chapel and certainly a fair bit of of wealth. So these members of the peerage have asked the local constabulary to check this out. Although maybe they haven't, because maybe they're what they're looking for is discretion, and so they have gone directly to Karnacki. But no, I'm I'm with you here, Brandon. That I I think this absolutely qualifies as an occult detective story. I don't think that there has to be something supernatural going on for it to qualify as a cult detective. I think that there has to be maybe the chance of something supernatural going on. But I think actually it's great for the genre when there isn't always something supernatural going on. And not just great for the genre. I think it's great for your iconic detective to occasionally handle some cases that actually turn out to be mundane to kind of break your own mold, break your own formula. Although we haven't read enough of these Karnacki stories for the show to really talk about, you know, the Karnacki formula right right now. But, you know, we can think about other iconic occult detectives that we are more familiar with, which I guess for the two of us together, that Venn diagram is really <laughs> the TV show Angel, which also does this sometimes, right? There's just actually exactly. yeah. something mundane happening. Yeah, and you need you need that sense of the mundane because if it's always some kind of supernatural adventure taking place, um, the world is kind of broken in a way. I think that is less inviting for the audience to kind of get to buy into what Karnacki's doing. It's like if the Ghostbusters like were needed all the time, you know, not just for. And that like like to think about other you know ghost adventure types of stories like the Ghostbusters like if if you actually lived in a New York like that where like every week every day they were getting calls to get rid of ghosts like the world is broken in a way that I think the storytelling doesn't quite uh, work as well as it could when it's really very occasional that this sort of occult stuff actually happens uh, when that becomes the norm. 
Um, I don't know. You don't need an occult detective. It would just be a detective because there would be a whole need for a whole age number of agencies of people to to engage with these sorts of problems instead of just one or two folks, you know, bumming around, getting paid highly to look into things once in a while. This is actually, I mean, as I'm talking about this, this is reminding me of Jonathan Strude's great YA series, Lockwood and Co., um, but also the great TV series, Evil, um, which deals with the Catholic Church sending people out to investigate supernatural stuff. And mostly it's mundane, but, you know, they play with that same sort of tension that this story does of whether it's mundane or whether there's something really evil or supernatural behind it. Where Lockwood and Co. takes a different approach and ghosts have become normal and it's become a big business. <laughs> and so uh, there's all this other all these other concerns there. That's a weird tangent, but I guess I just love occult detective stories. I don't know how tangential it is. It might be a bit premature because you know certainly we will talk about these issues again in our, our urine review show when we you know talk about the the two series, the two <laughs> themes that we're focusing on this year, in addition to the other sort of randomly selected stories by our our Patreon supporters. But this is, I think, a problem that stories start to have really in the interwar period, and then certainly our occult detective landscape today, which is largely existing on screen, largely existing in in television, where you're trying to tell a lot of stories forever and ever and ever, which is very different from John Silence and Karnacki, where we have, I think, you know, eight John Silence stories, maybe a dozen Karnacki stories, where there's a sense that this is something that happens to them occasionally, and we're just going to get a handful of these stories, as opposed to, nope, actually, there's going to be 22 of these stories every year for as many years as we can do this for, such that <laughs> you actually do start to wonder, like, how, you know, how is this happening? Like, how is there so much ghostly stuff going on, and yet everyone is still walking around the world as if like ghosts aren't just like a regular part of the fabric of <laughs> of of the world and that's it is a problem that those storytelling worlds uh, you know come come up against and I think Seabury Quinn, who we will cover eventually in this series here, we've covered before, is really the first person to you know come come up against this problem because he churns out so many of these stories, not one a week, but about one a month for a very very long time. So that's something we can keep in mind when we're you know dealing with Seabury Quinn and some of the later stories as well. Maybe a follow up question here, Brandon, is about this line that you mentioned uh, in the recap, this line about how 99 out of 100 cases that Karnacki investigates do turn out to be mundane. So you get a line like that. And I think the implicit understanding is that well, 1% of his cases do then turn out to be supernatural. And the obvious inference then at that point is that the Karnacki stories that we are getting, these dozen or so stories, are the one in a hundred cases. But this story is surely one of the 99, right? This this kind of confused me about the story is why tell this story? Why is Karnacki gathering his friends to tell this story? Um you know, the, the, this narrator character isn't really quite a, a John Watson sort, and neither is he like the type of narrator you get in a Joseph Conrad story. Maybe we'll talk about the function of the the narrator of the frame story in a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure, but I do wonder why choose to tell this story to your group of friends, if not to tell them how scary it is to be in the dark by yourself and how courageous you are for overcoming that, um, 
in a situation where you thought there might be a ghost. So the, the real like occasion for telling this story seems to be Karnacki uh, reassuring his friends that he's a, he's a courageous man. And so like, to me then I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe this story could have used a second pass. That's how I feel about this story. I think it needed one more pass. I think this is a fair criticism here, where it's just not clear to me what is the impetus for telling this story, right? When you've got this setup, which is that Karnacki gets his friends together to tell him about not 99 out of 100 of his adventures, but the one, the one in 100 that's really interesting and worth telling. Although I enjoyed the heck out of this story, this doesn't really seem to meet those criteria. And so, yeah, I wonder, you know, why has he summoned these people to tell this particular story about a weird, you know, dagger trap in this chapel and a, a sad, grieving old man? It's a good story, but it doesn't seem to fit that criteria. So that was just really interesting to me. And I do think, you know, I like this line about how I actually do a lot of investigations. Most of them turn out to be mundane and also then perhaps not very interesting. I'm going to tell the stories about the ones that are interesting. Not all the interesting ones actually themselves are going to be supernatural. Some of the mundane ones are interesting. I mean, I think this is the type of setup that you, you know, you have to have if you're going to have a series like this. I, you know, I've set this up with my own occult detective, Henslow, where like most of the time, the idea is that he's just doing, you know, insurance claims and divorce cases and so on. But every once in a while, there is something supernatural happening, or at least might be. And those are the stories I'm going to write, punctuated from time to time by, you know, an actual mundane thing where the baddies really do just turn out to be humans and not something supernatural. But yeah, I don't have that framing device, right? <laughs> where where I haven't kind of set up my own criteria for telling stories and then immediately break it. Yeah, it is. It is a strange device. Of course, we're reading these Karnacki stories out of order. Um, and this one is kind of near the end of Hodgson, Hodgson's run on Karnacki. I mean, it's like kind of a comic phrase, but <laughs> I don't think anybody picked up Karnacki after Hodgson. Um, but still, it's that same feeling we got when we read that last John Silence story where it's like, uh, you know, let's go out maybe with a whimper. Uh, instead of a bang, like these, the, the, there's less supernatural stuff going on. Here's a fun kind of com like comedic story about this character. It's kind of like, um, you know, like a, a late post sweeps week episode of a TV show where they have like four episodes before sweeps in the end of the season where they just have to do like a, a little character story here or something else that just kind of fills the space. We still get some cool stuff, but it's not like the core story. It's not, the story's not doing the thing that, you know, we're super engaged with whatever show for. Right. Yeah. We haven't actually done the first Karnacki story or any of the early Karnacki stories because Haunted Jarvis is also a, a late story as well. So someday we will do those just on our own or at least get them or at least maybe somebody will nominate them on a ballot or something like that. And we'll we'll see if we can get them. Um, I do want to say, Brandon, actually, that uh, lots of people have written Karnacki stories after Hodgson. And in fact, uh, you and I will be covering one of them as one of the bonus episodes for our Sherlock Holmes bonus series on Patreon. Yes. Uh, probably that'll be out so summertime 2023, I guess, maybe actually early fall of 2023, which I'm very excited about. It's a story in which uh, 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 Karnacki uh, appears in really a Sherlock Holmes story. But, uh, but actually, there's a ton of Karnacki stuff written by people who are not Hodgson that I would love to cover someday. Well, I want to circle back, Brandon, 
Brandon, you, uh, I think, kind of requested that we talk about the narrator a little bit here, which I think, which I think is an important and interesting feature of this story. We've talked about, you know, the narrators of these detective stories before, but I was just really struck by the framing device here in this summons and uh, what's the motive for telling this story. And we have, you know, the, the narrator character who's not named. And then we also have Jessup and Arkwright and Taylor are also in the audience. And then there's Karnacki. So there's five people seemingly in this kind of regular dinner and story club, though Karnacki seems to be the only person to, I don't know, host the dinner and tell the story as far as I can tell. But I wonder if this is the extent of their friendship. Do they have other social engagements with one another or is this just what the friendship is? And do they get together when Karnacki's not around? Like, do they go out to dinner or like go, go to each other's houses and tell other stories? you know, about their wives or something. I, I, I'm not sure, right? This, this setup here really works. I think if you don't know how to end your own story, right? So what you do is you frame it. And then the beginning of the story is the frame that introduces the storyteller. And the end of the story is when the storyteller's done telling the story and asks you to leave his house. And that's kind of how how this feels because otherwise there's no reason why this shouldn't be a first person story a first person story as most of it is told uh from Karnacki's point of view um so yeah it's it's a real big question of mine i don't know why the narrator doesn't have a name it's not clear to me that he's like written this down and is then like you know the notebooks of of John Watson or something like that that get published in the paper i don't know what the relationship is between the narrator hearing the story and the story as an artifact that we are then picking up and reading. Um, so there's a lot of questions I have, but it does work to frame out the story nicely, to give us a nice beginning and then a, a clean ending. And I think if you need to lean on that trick as a writer, um, that's fine by me. It totally works for me. Yeah, I think so as well. Though I'm envisioning uh, a kind of spin-off series that where we actually get these other four characters having adventures while Karnacki is out of town. Uh, kind of like when this, you know, Buffy Summers goes uh, to visit her dad over the summer vacation and yeah. the Scooby Gang still has to fight <laughs> vampires and not do it nearly as well. Like I kind of want a spin-off series like that. I do too. I was just in my head, like writing the intro of this, of a story with Arkwright leaving, because Arkwright's the best name, leaving Karnacki's house and like lighting a pipe and going on his own adventure. That's like way more intense than Karnacki's, but he's just a very modest man and, and likes to eat dinner <laughs> with his friends. Right. Yeah. And I think people have also uh, done something similar with, with Watson from Sherlock Holmes. I mean, like actually Watson was the great detective. He was just humble about it. And he had all these other side adventures that he never wrote about, which is a, a fantastic, uh, really just a, a, an awesome gimmick. But uh, I think if we are mapping out our own spinoff series um, and, and spinoff series for stories that aren't even the main story we were talking about on this episode, I think we have uh, put this one to bed here. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Thanks again for coming along with us on this ride. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And please, Join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia so you can vote for the kinds of stories we're going to cover next year. If you can't join us on Patreon for whatever reason and you haven't reviewed our show yet, please take some time to do that. That helps us a lot too. 
Next time, we will be back with a bonus episode that was commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. Uh, That's going to be November Saints by Alan Moore, the next chapter in Voice of the Fire. And then after that, we will be back with our regularly scheduled episode on Death and the Compass by Jorge Luis Borges. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.